I think I got in a little bit too early on of it being the hobby business and like, oh, I just love building and I do love building. But if it's at the sake of sales, then at some point you're just going to always be trying to paddle to catch that wave that is the cash flow. A dollar and 49 cents for an entire year? That's a ridiculous deal. I actually had to double check to make sure, but yeah, that's what it is. You can get a Woodworkers Guild of America premium membership for $1.49 for the full year. Not every month, the full year. That's unlimited access to hundreds of step-by-step -step instructional woodworking videos, exclusive access to live-streamed events with expert woodworkers, and more. With new videos every week and an outrageously large back catalog, this membership has all your woodworking needs covered. It's an easy deal to get. All you need to do is use this link, go.wwgoa.com slash Ethan. A membership like this is normally $88 for the year, but don't worry, I got you the deal of a lifetime. Just use this link and your code is automatically applied. So go to go.wwgoa.com slash Ethan and see for yourself all the benefits you get with a premium guild membership. Last time, go.wwgoa.com slash Ethan for only $1.49. Enjoy. Introducing Astra HP, the newest high-performance innovation in cutting-edge technology from bits and bits. Let me tell you what's new about it. It's incredibly thin, measuring at just 0.3 microns. It's also tougher than ever with an impressive 5,000 Vickers hardness, and it's specially designed to reduce friction and heat buildup, leading to cleaner cuts and longer tool life. Available now on all their newest spiral CNC bits and router bits. So if you want to check it out yourself, go to bitsbits.com. That's B-I-T-S, B-I-T-S dot com. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Richie Duncan, owner of Kodama. Richie didn't start out wanting to invent a new kind of furniture, but through a mix of his love for design, engineering background, and adventurous travel, he did just that. But there's a big leap from coming up with a new idea and being able to successfully manufacture and sell that idea. So for the last 10 years, Richie has been building and refining and learning to understand the ins and outs of the furniture industry, while at the same time, he continues to bring innovative furniture to market. So follow along as we talk about when to give away product, how to price for a market that doesn't exist, growing a business like a family, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Richie's story in his own words. It definitely started young. I've always been a, a tinkerer and builder, you know, Lincoln Logs and Legos, that kind of thing. I learned woodworking uh, growing up with my dad and we would make a, uh, we'd make simple cutting boards and that stuff. But we would also make some more uh, intricate items uh, like desks where, you know, all of a sudden we're putting in um, door roller hardware and that kind of stuff. So just getting a little bit more, uh, more elaborate than just your basic cutting board. My education is in engineering, so I, uh, I went to school, um, actually started uh, mechanical engineering. I was going to go into robotics and prosthetics. Had I known at the time that there was a, a field known as industrial engineering, I definitely would have gone towards that, but that wasn't even in my, in my vocabulary at the time. And uh, 
realizing how long it was going to take uh, school-wise to stay with prosthetics, where not only did I have to get uh, mechanical engineering and some robotics, but also some medical stuff, I switched over and uh, saw the fastest way through school was through civil engineering. So I moved over into civil, uh, majored in a kind of a subset of civil engineering uh, called structural engineering, graduated, started working for, uh, for a company in Lake Tahoe. So it was a great place to cut my teeth on engineering and uh, designed some beautiful houses all while getting to go skiing and mountain bike all the time. Yeah, so I've been doing uh, architecture and engineering uh, pretty much my adult life up until about uh, 30, 35 years old. And uh, after a while, just getting a little burnt out on it, you know, doing the same remodels, doing the same renovations. Uh, left Tahoe and traveled around for a bit. In my travels, I spent quite a bit of time down in South America, started learning some uh, more natural building methods. Uh, Adobe, light clay straw. Um, during my travels down there, I met up with somebody who uh, was teaching classes on geo, uh, geodesic domes and zones. And because of the language barrier, I was like, what is she saying? She keeps saying zone over and over again. Like, what am I missing? Because I just kept thinking a dome, like a Buckminster Fuller dome. After a while, I realized that a zone is a different shape than a dome, although they're uh, slightly related. You know, I, I kind of fell in love with this shape that is this uh, zone, a zonohedra. So it kind of looks like a geodesic dome, but it has a pointy top on it. Kind of looks like the the minarets um, in the Middle East or, or Russia, something like that, or like a Hershey Kiss type uh, type shape. Uh, just fell in love with the shape. Uh, I, when I came back from traveling, I came back to the states and realized, like, man, if I don't keep building these little zone structures, and they were all made out of wood and on the ground, if I don't keep building them, I'm gonna forget about this shape. So. Um, I started building them, made a tomato trellis, made a little uh, playhouse for the kids. And it was making that playhouse for the kids where I kind of made the mistake and came into furniture. Uh, so what happened was uh, you know, I'm based in Oregon and I was just going to make a little structure for the kids on the ground and cover it with canvas and, hey, great place to play. And then I realized, man, that's a dumb idea. You're going to cover it in canvas. It's Oregon. It's going to be covered in mold within one season. So I decided to cover the whole thing in chicken wire and ferro cement. So I did the whole thing in ferro cement. So it came out awesome. It looks like a bunker, but the foundation was way too flimsy to support that much weight on top. I kept thinking, man, I, I hate I hate working all this concrete. And maybe the natural side of me came came through, or was like, oh, this rebar and concrete to put a foundation here. But I had the idea, like, oh, wait a second, this zone has a cool shape. What if I hung it from above? That was kind of the epiphany. Once I realized that I could take the, the structure of the zone and hang it from above, um, I made a little uh, prototype out of baling twine and some old scrap wood. And sure enough, it like it looked like a cool thing and it held weight. I put a five-gallon bucket of water in there and like, oh my God, this is a cool structure. And not only that, but I was able to like use the engineering to realize like, oh, I can make these tension-only elements. And oh, I can make these compression-only elements. So kind of using gravity as as a design tool rather than always trying to work against it and build against it. Little did I know at the time that I was going to get into the furniture realm, um, but I made one that was larger. I just want to see how big I can make one. And sure enough, made one big enough where I could climb into it. And I realized it was really comfortable. So I stumbled upon furniture, not necessarily for the love of furniture, but for the love of tinkering around and design and uh, kind of an engineer's approach to architecture and design, kind of the marriage of the function and the form. Well, I think that, and I'm going to use your own words here, on your website, you say, we believe that great design can change lives. And I know that you're saying that for your customers. I know that you're saying that 
your designs are going to change your life because you're going to enjoy sitting in these structures, but it's really for you. You had this great idea for a design and you weren't thinking along that road. You were thinking a tomato trellis, but it was a great design. And from that, this whole company's grown and it's been almost 10 years you're building it. So it really has changed your life. I want to talk about, I guess, the category first and then talk about the actual pieces of furniture. And this idea of dynamic furniture and furniture that moves, it's not new. There's rocking chairs and there's hammocks and and there's benches that swing. But you are revolutionizing in some way this category because it's a whole new shape. So let's talk about you jumping into a category that you really had to reinvent because you weren't just doing that same old hammock. You were doing something totally new. When you got into this category, how did you start differentiating yourself and showing this was something new? Yeah, it's um, it was tough in the beginning. And honestly, it's still it's still difficult. You know, I'll go to you know, parties or mixers and like, oh, so what do you do? And, you know, my answer is furniture. Like, oh, cool. What kind? And I, I have to pull out the Instagram and show people. It's just a, it's a very uh, difficult thing to try to describe. And you're completely right with, um, there has been movement in furniture before with rocking chairs and hammocks. Uh, but once again, you know, this is a, really is an entirely new category. You know, a rocking chair, you're sitting on top of the rocking chair and the center of rotation is kind of where you are. So it, if anything, it almost mimics like you being on a ship. So, you know, um, some people will be like, oh, uh, I, I don't like hammocks or I don't, I wouldn't like your zone because I get seasick. And I can understand where that comes from because, you know, you sit on a rocking chair or a bed that has four uh, ropes that suspend it. And it does give a very um, erratic type of motion. And it's not very soothing. I don't know if you've ever slept on one of those hanging beds, but it's great for the first two minutes and you're like, oh man, this is just kind of weird. It gives me a queasy feeling. One thing I realized about the zone and that single overhead point is that it mimics the cradle and it mimics this pendulum motion. And specific to answer your question, how I how I started teaching people about it was uh, my early marketing. I was going to um, resorts and just donating a zone to them. It was a lot cheaper for me to to make a product and donate it and get all of that exposure. And I'm still getting sales from uh, zones that I have donated nine years ago that are on, uh, in in resorts in in California. Uh, but in the beginning, I was going to trade shows and. Uh, talking to people and hearing their response. And at one trade show, and this is where kind of I decided to jump in deeper. Uh, there was a, there's a lady there who had a daughter who was on the spectrum and uh, on the, on the autism spectrum. And she got in and she was sitting in there and just rocking back and forth. And she looked pretty blissed out. And I was talking to the mom, you know, normal chit chat banter back and forth after about five minutes, you know, the mom was like, okay, okay, sweetie, time to go. Uh, so she, so she, she gets out and whispers to her mom, and her mom's like, just like had a strange look on her face. And she comes up to me. She's like, you know, my, my, my daughter, you know, she's not nonverbal, but she's pretty reclusive. And she just told me that your swing made her feel as good as she has ever felt. And, you know, maybe there was some hyperbole in that, you know, for sure. But just the fact that that was the feedback from somebody who is sensitive to these things and sensitive to movement. I was like, man, there's, there's something here. So this goes beyond the hammock. This goes beyond a hanging egg chair. This goes beyond a rocking chair. You know, to get that kind of response from somebody who is obviously very sensitive, them in a space that made them feel that comfortable, you know, within, you know, within a busy trade show environment, like, wow, okay, this is, there's something about this motion. 
you had to work hard to get that motion to be comfortable for people, to be comfortable for everybody. And you mm. put a lot of time in your production. And I know that you have your own production shop and build everything in house. And I do want to talk about that, but I don't want to gloss over something you said before. And that was that you donated and you gave your product Mm -hmm. to customers and to businesses. And that was your marketing because there's a lot of talk in the beginning when people are starting their furniture business of don't give your product away for too cheap. Don't give a very low price because then you're always going to be stuck at that low price for customers moving forward. But people forget that giving away product and putting it strategically, not to any customer, not to anybody who comes, but strategically using it as your marketing is helpful especially in a situation like you where you're making a product. You're not doing custom furniture. You're not doing one-off pieces of furniture. You're doing a product that you are going to resell year after year after year. So can you talk about your decision to start giving away product to specific places and what goes into that decision when it makes sense to give something away versus just go the standard marketing route? Sure. So, um, I realized early on um, I had spent some dollars in marketing in terms of getting a brand built up in terms of logos and hired somebody somebody to help with uh, you know colors and messaging and just kind of build what that brand is going to look like. Uh, but as soon as I started getting into uh, actual advertising and marketing, it's it's really important to do good marketing. There's no doubt about it. And if there's one area that uh, I still think Kodama needs improvement on is the uh, is the marketing aspect of it. That being said, I think that it is way too easy to waste way too much money on marketing. There are digital agencies that are a dime a dozen and some of them are decent and some of them are not. And there's just so many of them out there. So for me, it became in the beginning, it was a very easy decision in that, man, I have to explain over and over again what the zone is, what it is that I'm doing. Nobody knows what it is. Um, Two, I need practice in building these. You know, we're doing small batch uh, stuff and each time we do it, hey, we're getting a little bit more efficient. We're getting a little bit better, and we just need this out there. We need pictures. You know, you do one photo shoot, and you know that's really expensive. Then it's pretty obvious when it's the same background or the same models in every single photo shoot over and over again. So really, just to start getting the product out there, to start getting some content, to start getting some some pictures, I saw that the best thing to do uh, was to get the product out there. Um, so in deciding who to approach, Tim Ferriss will say like, Hey, scratch your own itch. I'm like, man, I like going to glamping resorts. I like going to nice high end resorts. I like going to places that, um, are relaxing and, you know, soothing to be at. So I packed up the truck. I was in Tahoe at the time. I packed up the truck and I, uh, and I traveled down to, um, California coast and Carmel and down to Big Sur and all of those areas along there hitting those uh, smaller boutique glamping areas, donating the product there. So not only was I getting uh, amazing, amazing pictures, but I was also getting to stay at great places. I, we had one up in Esalen for um, you know, a couple of years before a huge storm came and actually took the cliffside away along the, along with the tree that it was in. So, you know, that even made a story, you know, like this terrible storm that took a whole bunch of the the cliffside of Esalen, there was a zone on it also. So I was getting to do something that I really wanted to do in terms of where do I want this furniture company to take me? Hey, I want it to take me to beautiful areas. And 
what's going to be best for the company is getting as many people seeing it and sitting in it and trying it out as possible. Let's talk about your production and how you built that up from when it was just you making it out of chicken wire and concrete to <laughs> now a, an international company that you're producing these throughout the year. Yeah. What were some of the steps that you took? And if you can walk us through a little bit of the progression of just you building it to making your first production run to hiring your employees to getting your processes in place because it's one product and somebody who builds custom furniture or does custom work might think, oh, that's easy. We'll just figure that out in one day. But it's one product that is going out to commercial spaces. It's going out to clients all over the country. And so you need to really dial that in. So can you talk about how that production of this piece of furniture progress throughout the years? Yeah. So in the beginning, it was when it was just me in the beginning making this and still uh, deciding what it was going to be, what the shape was, it was going to be, what the material was going to be made out of. I realized very early on that it was not going to be wood. Um, basically, I needed to be able to uh, bend things and I needed it to be rigid. I needed to be able to to hold a moment, you know, so it bending strength to it. So it needed to be metal and, and I needed to learn how to weld. I had no clue how to weld. So in that first year, I asked uh, a buddy of mine if he wanted to come to the local community college with me on, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday evenings or Tuesday, Thursday evenings and pick up welding and learn how to weld. And he was like, sure, I've always wanted to learn how to weld, you know, not thinking that there was going to be anything with him and I working together. But it was just, a, you know, a couple friends going and learning and learning a new skill. Uh, lo and behold, after learning how to weld, um, I realized he was a much better welder than I was. So it was pretty uh, quick to say, like, well, not only am I busy trying to build the business and run the business, but also you have uh, more skills welding than I do. So why don't you come on board and, and be my right hand guy and be my welder? Uh, so that was my first employee, um, and he's still with me to this day. Um, there's no way that the company would have made it uh, and still wouldn't be here without him helping out and all of his expertise. It wasn't uh, too long after that first year um, realizing that, okay, now we've got two people building things, but uh, we really don't have anything on the fabric side. And um, so when you see the picture of the Zome, all of the... Uh, all the diagonal pieces is actually polyester webbing. When I was saying tension-only element, that's what that is. Uh, so it allows us to to knock down all of these pieces of furniture. So a zome actually ships in a box that's only six inches thick, only six inches tall, and the whole thing kind of opens up and you, you you compression fit everything together. So all of that webbing needs to get um, cut and then woven in in a, in a specific way, woven into the metal, sewed up so that you can uh, attach it with shackles to the bottom. Uh, so my third hire was... Um, actually a uh, lady who I had done some engineering and architecture work for. So she was one of my clients um, when I was back doing uh, engineering and architecture. And she was really, really good at sewing and uh, had her own little uh, side business of making pillows and that kind of stuff. So hired her on. She was my, she was my third hire. And that, so the team grew very organically. You know, it's, we definitely had a family feel to it. I know that that's not necessarily the best way to build a company is saying, Hey, we're all family. Uh, but that was kind of what was true. And, just like uh, my welder, um, my sewer is still here to the day. So uh, all of my early employees are still here. Uh, some of the other employees that I've tried to hire, especially in the uh, business aspect side of it, uh, salespeople, marketing people, a lot of those people have come and went. But uh, the core production folks, um, they're still around to this day making it happen. 
When you have something that's new to market, we've already talked about that this is not your standard hammock. This is something new and you really want to be able to protect your idea, your design as much as possible. And I know that you went through the patent process with some of your different pieces of furniture. Can you talk about that that patent process and when you decided you wanted to really lock this down and a little bit of what that involved? Sure, sure. So um, I guess a little bit of background on, on patents, at least in the U.S. There are, are, are two main areas of patents. One is a utility patent and one is a design patent. Uh, the best analogy that was uh, given to me in the beginning was, uh, think about uh, the telephone. So uh, Alexander Graham Bell in the beginning got a utility patent for a telephone, you know, this thing that you pick up and you can talk to somebody on the other side of the country or the other side of the state. So that's the utility patent as to what a telephone is. Uh, a couple of years later, Walt Disney comes around and he gets a design patent on the Mickey Mouse telephone. So it's he's not reinventing the telephone, but now the telephone the design of it is a specific way. So um, generally speaking, a um, utility patent is stronger than a design patent because the utility patent is the, the function behind it and the design patent more of a, a shape or a, a form, a fashion of it. Uh, so typically you'll see a lot of design patents really get knocked off pretty easy. Like you see it in, in fashion and handbags and clothing all the time. So those are design patents getting knocked off. I decided that since I had something that was new um, and it would fall into the realm of a utility patent, that this was an important thing to uh, to get uh, protection on. Uh, also, looking to grow the company, uh, looking for investors, having a patent and having a defensible IP, uh, intellectual property, having defensible IP is a very important um, key to courting investors. So that was a, a large part of it too. This may be a good way to segue into um, so the Zone was the first product that uh, that I came up with, um, and then that was kind of the what I wrote on for about six years of the company, something like that. Um, and right about that time, I realized, hey, I want this to be more than just a hobby business, a little hobby company, looking for this to grow and scale up. Uh, but again, I, it's hard to be that with just a one-trick pony, and it's a niche piece of furniture, uh, a Zone. Uh, so trying to build on that that motion. Um, I started development of a, of a new line that I called the Pendulo Chair in the process of launching that right now. Uh, with that Pendulo Chair, I also went through and got uh, IP, some uh, patents on that. I have one utility patent already awarded on that. I have a second one pending. Um, and then there's also pending stuff for uh, uh, international patents. There's no doubt about it. Patents are very expensive and they take a long time. So um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend a design patent unless it's something that you really uh, feel is going to scale and and I think the investor thing is one of the one of the the, the big routes to go it's it definitely uh, makes investors more uh, interested to see that your um, that what they are potentially going to invest in with your company does have some uh, legal legal teeth to it that can support itself I want to talk about something that is always what people want to hear on this show, and that's pricing. And you have an interesting <laughs> scenario here because you're making everything in-house so you can control 95, 99% of your costs, but you're also making something that has no real competitors. It's not like you are making a rocking chair. We'll go back to that. And you can say, there's a lot of other rocking chairs on the market. I'm going to price accordingly. 
for something that's comparable. You're making something that's furniture, yes, but is much different than what people are seeing out there. When you're pricing things out and making your own market for a product, what goes into that thought process of what this is going to cost when you sell it? Great question. And I'll tell you, that's something that I'll go back and revisit probably once a year just to reassess where we are. Um, So in the beginning, I think that we just kind of took the standard, like, okay, here's the cost of what it costs us. And let's see, you know, um, let's double it or like, oh, now we don't have any, uh, now we don't have any um, budget available for marketing or we don't have any budget available to give discounts. And in the beginning, we weren't giving any discounts. It was just even, even for trade pricing, we weren't giving any discounts. So, um, so in the beginning, we were doing just like a, a double our cost and we realized that that wasn't going to work uh, very well at all. Um, and then getting back to your point, like we're doing everything. We are the designer. We are the manufacturer. We are the distributor. So if anything, three of the pieces of pie that are normally distributed between three different entities, that's all under one roof. So we'll, we'll put that on the shelf for now and then just talk about comparables for a little bit. And you're absolutely right. So what is the zone? What is this furniture that we're doing? Uh, yes, it's furniture, but it's also experiential. And, you know, it, it's a place that you sit and you know feel something and enjoy time so honestly we started looking at comps in terms of like okay what is a nice hot tub out there or even what is a what's a weekend um trip at a winery cost you know to go and stay at an airbnb and go to winery so it's more like okay what is that experience worth um and i think that the uh, the hot tub is probably kind of the closest that we've come to in terms of okay a hot, do you consider hot tub furniture no not really but by a stretch, maybe it could be. Uh, so we started comparing it with that. So getting back to the actual like cost of goods and uh, doing a multiplier on that, you know, we tried some simple like okay, double it, okay, do a three point two. Uh, when we started getting into uh, trade pricing, interior designers and trade folks, there are a lot of different opinions out there, and uh, a lot of folks are happy with fifteen percent. A lot of people are offended at fifteen percent. So we started doing a volumetric discount. Uh, you're buying a single zone. You know, somebody's buying it for their house, an interior designer is specking it out for one of their projects. Great, here's 15%. Uh, but then we're dealing with hotels or um, uh, larger facilities, uh, educational institutions, something like that. They're buying six zones, 10 zones at a time, something like that. Um, we're able to offer uh, a price break on that based on volume. I think we're going up to 25% or 30% uh, discount on that. We haven't gone into the brick and mortar retail area yet, but again, that's going to add a whole another layer of, okay, brick and mortar, you know, um, not saying that our product is really a, uh, a peer one type of product, but, you know, just for comparison, you know, those guys are, those guys are going to want 40%, maybe 50% margin on their stuff. So uh, it's really hard to, you know, you start looking at what we do and what we sell. You're like, oh my God, that's really expensive. And I'm like, well, it is, but when right off the bat, you know, it's, 50% through uh, through Pier 1 or something like that, like all of a sudden, like, uh, so yeah, it is a moving target. And uh, for the longest time, we um, we were priced too low. Uh, just to finish this topic, we were priced too low and people weren't buying it. I think that when we first were selling the zone, it was uh, uh, 3,300 or 3,600 for the large zone. I mean, we're barely covering our costs, but again, kind of, we did the no-no of, hey, don't be too cheap in the beginning because it's, it's harder to raise your prices. We raised the price um, early on from 3300 or whatever that was up to 5200 and actually we started selling a lot more. So I think that um, 
knowing who your customer is. Um, nobody wanted to buy this weird thing that was 3300 It was too cheap and it was too flimsy and, you know, maybe it wasn't even going to be safe. You know, we wouldn't want to do that. But, oh, all of a sudden this is 5000 Oh, this is 6000 It gives people more security and also it gives us the margin that we need to operate and also gives us the margin to be able to provide much better service that way. For somebody who never had the idea to go into furniture as your future career, you sure have spent a lot of your your time and mental energy and thought process on building a furniture company. And it's been almost 10 years and you're still going strong with this. So something along the lines changed where you weren't a furniture company owner and you now are. And there are people listening who want to start their own furniture business. They want to get into this or they've been doing it for a long time and feel like they could be doing it better. What's some advice that you could share from going from zero to full furniture company owner over your time and your career? What's some advice that you could share with those people that has helped you along the way? So recently in one of my social media swipings, you know, just sitting on a couch and wasting an hour of my life swiping, you know, you come across some things there and there's something I came across, I don't know from whom or when, um, but it really stuck. And I've been sitting with that for several months now. And I wish that I knew this sooner. Uh, So hopefully somebody who's listening can, can hear this and learn this lesson a little bit sooner than I did. But the advice that came across was that like sales over efficiency. Without sales, without getting the cash flow coming through, it doesn't matter how efficient you are building something. Yes, you still need to have a good product that's needed right off the bat. But don't spend too much time or too much energy optimizing the production and optimizing a whole bunch of stuff in the shop if the sales are not being focused on. So once you have your product, once you have it down, even if for the first couple years, it's still a little inefficient and you're still wasting a couple extra hours because you don't have the new tool or you're not, you know, you didn't set up the jig and you have to kind of do it each time. Like, yeah, that sucks. You should make that more efficient. But if you're spending all of your time making production more efficient, then you may get into the category that, I think I got in a little bit too early on of it being the hobby business and like, oh, I just love building and I do love building. But if it's at the sake of sales, then at some point you're just going to always be trying to paddle to catch that wave that is the cash flow. And you're always going to be a little bit behind and paddling hard to be able to drop into that wave. So make sure that you always keep sales and the cash flow more important than shop efficiency at least in the beginning. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. And I appreciate you sharing the rest of your journey so far and wishing you nothing but success moving forward in your business and where you take it. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. I mean, just listening to, uh, you know, other folks that you've had on this podcast, I've certainly gleaned a whole lot of information from that. Who knows, maybe that little bit of advice (laughs) was from your podcast and I'm just reiterating it. Uh, but yeah, I think the more people can uh, talk, especially in the in the furniture realm and things that are similar, I think when you get into uh, creative uh, small businesses like uh, we we are in and like a lot of the listeners are in, yeah, we shouldn't be uh, hiding any secrets. You know, it's uh, I think we all, we all help each other out. Mm-hmm. 
Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build with Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.